0: Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn this morning to the New Testament book of Matthew. We are studying chapter by chapter of the Old Testament book of Amos this month, but because of the events of the weekend here in our area, I thought it was appropriate to see what the Lord Jesus has to say. Matthew chapter five, verses thirteen and sixteen will be the text. The title: "The Christian's Role in the World." Yesterday morning, I w- woke up and went to the computer to uh, the news feed uh, that our computer is subscribed to. And uh, it's one of those news agencies that I use to raise my blood pressure in the morning and get things going. Totally secular, very humanistic worldview in general. But across the page in huge font was a question with pictures of the devastation in Dallas over the weekend at the bottom. The question was, who can save us? And I said, at least you're asking the right question. And you read only the article, but it wasn't what we had hoped it to be. It, it was the idea, is there some political figure, some human being that we can get behind that can lead us to peace? Well, for Christians, we have the answer to that question, who can save us? It is the Lord Jesus. In fact, the reason we are here and not in heaven today is because... The Lord Jesus gave us a job to do in the world, and let's read about it here in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. It's set within the great Sermon on the Mount, just after the Beatitudes. Jesus is speaking, I believe, to Christians, and this is what he says, "'You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it become salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men.' You are the light of the world, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and if it gives light to all who are in the house, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. May the Lord add his blessing to the hearing and reading of his word. Well, for several decades now, many of us as Christians have been observing the trajectory of our culture and of the world system. And we've used words like shock and dismay and horror and anxiety to describe how we feel. Well, this weekend, a lot of those same words were used to describe not just how Christians feel, but how people in general feel. When we observe the senseless death and violence, there's anger, there's fear, there's sadness. And the reflexive response as a Christian is to say, Lord Jesus, come quickly, right? Uh, we we long for the day when this is all over and we're in the presence of the Prince of Peace. And yet we know intellectually that we still are called to live in this world, along with about seven billion other human beings. Why doesn't Jesus just take us home? Well, undoubtedly it's because He has a role and a function for us in the world. <laughs> well, we just read what it was from Matthew chapter five. He says to Christians that we are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Now, what does that mean? Well, John MacArthur said, if we could distill the Christian's role in the world into one word, that word would be influence. We all have influence over other people, whether we know it or not, or whether we like it or not. Parents, you know that you are the most influential person in your child's life. All of us as adults have those moments in time where we say something and we catch ourselves, and we say, I sounded just like my mother. Whether we know it or not, whether we like it or not, we are being influenced by others and we're influencing others. That includes friends, acquaintances, neighbors. My predecessor, Dr. Leroy Patterson, used to say that a parent's primary job is to choose their children's friends without their children knowing that's what they did. (laughs) And that's true. You know that outside of you as a parent, Their friends are going to influence them more than any other, so you need to help choose those friends. When we go off to work, the person to the left and right of us in our cubicle or on our team, the neighbors in our subdivision, the clerk at the store where we shop for groceries, all of those people are being influenced by us. The question is, what sort of influence will we have? I want you to know that I'm preaching primarily to to Keith Sanders today because I know I need to have more influence in my sphere than I do. And sometimes I behi- hide behind my uh, introversion. It may surprise some of you to know that I am a introvert by nature to the nth degree. I like quiet places. I don't like crowded places except church. I find it awkward to interact with strangers If the neighbors are out in the cul-de-sac when I drive home I don't naturally congregate with them. I have to force myself into those situations and yet I know by reading the Scripture that the Lord Jesus wants me to influence others around me for His glory. And I can't do that in isolation. So what does it mean then to be salt and light? Well, before we answer that question we need to see what it does not mean. He's not saying that we must become like the world to influence the world. In other places the Scripture says be ye holy as I am holy. Would you agree with me that this world is not a holy place? And so if we're to be holy we can't be just like the world. I think this is a great mistake that the evangelical church writ large is making. We've bought into the notion that if we are to be able to be heard by a lost and dying world, then we have to camouflage ourselves as one of them. We have to talk like them and play the same music they play. We have to be consumed with what they're consumed by, which is pop culture. We have to be on the cutting edge of every new technology and we have to dress like them and go where they go lest they not listen to what we have to say. Don't you believe it? It's my experience, and I think the Bible backs it up, that... People in a lost and dying world are looking, in a sense, not for what is just like them. Because they're coming to the conclusion, if they can take into consideration at all what's happening in the world, that their way is not working. And if we're just like the world, we have nothing to offer. Neither are we to fall in love with the world. In fact, the Apostle John writes, Love not the world, neither the things of the world. He's not saying don't love people. When he speaks of the world there, he's talking about the world system, its philosophies, what it values, what it is pursuing. And so sometimes when we're out in the world, we find that we're being influenced by the world. And we begin to sound like them and act like them and pursue the same things that that they're pursuing. In fact, we begin to love what they love. The scripture says don't let that happen. And so here is the challenge before us as Christians, to live in the world, we know not when the Lord is coming, to live in the world but not be like the world, not be of the world, in other other words. So as I sat down at my desk yesterday to write this sermon, I thought of three three possibilities of how we should respond as Christians. And I will tell you that, again, my reflexive knee-jerk response is to get out my atlas, open it up, find the state of Montana, find the most isolated place in the state of Montana, point my finger to it and say, that's where we're moving. And take my four children and my wife and go up there and buy a little piece of land and build a fort <laughs> and not allow anything in the world into my family. That, that's my initial response, isolation. And yet I know the Scripture well enough to know that that is not an option for a Christian. We are the salt of the world, but if the salt is in a box on a shelf in a pantry somewhere, it's not performing its function. It's useless. The second option is equivocation. We find ourselves as Christians, as the church, increasingly marginalized, pushed to the edges. Our opinions have no weight. In fact, Once again this week, we have seen that our basic freedoms and rights seem to be eroding right before our eyes. And so, one of the options that some will take no doubt is equivocation. If you can't beat them, join them. And so, for for fear of being even more marginalized than we already are, let's become so much like the world that they can't spot us in a crowd. (laughs) Let's be indistinguishable from the world, and you know that's not an option according to the scripture. Be holy, for I am holy, and holiness, dear friends, will stand out in sharp relief from the world in which we live, and the only option that's left is the biblical one, and that is agreement with Jesus. That's always the right course of action, isn't it? And what Jesus says here in Matthew chapter five describes his understanding of the world And of the culture. And so what we need to understand based on Matthew 5 is Jesus' assessment of the world is that it is rotten. That's why it needs salt to preserve it. And it is dark. That's why it needs light. And you say, wait a second. That's awfully harsh. That's awfully harsh, Pastor. Aren't most people basically good? Aren't these things we see on the news aberrations Aren't these people certainly crazy? Well, the the truth is that Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, and who can understand it? He's not talking about the worst of the worst. He's not talking about some fraction of a percentage of people who make the rest of us look bad. He's talking about the human condition, the heart of man, we could say is desperately deceitful beyond cure, that is from a human perspective is what it means. This is a rotten world and it is a dark world. Our own president this week, we need to pray for him, said this about the tragedy. This is not who we are. That's what we want to believe. That would help us sleep better at night. But with all due respect to our president, this is who we are. The heart is desperately wicked. All of us left to our own devices are capable of those crimes and sins and even worse. This is called depravity. This is why we teach theology at our church because we need to have the answer to the question, how could this happen? It happens because The heart of man is desperately wicked. He is depraved, left to his own devices. He will always choose sin. And yet, unbelievably, even the church sometimes chimes in with this idea that man is basically good. There is a system of eschatology, which is the study of last things called postmillennialism. It was very popular 200 years ago. Almost unheard of today. Postmillennialism, Millennialism—easy for me to say—has the idea that mankind is going to become better and better. The longer that Christians are in the world, that man's going to get better and better. To the culture gets to a point that it's so good that Jesus can be at home here again, and that's when the second coming will happen. And that was very popular until things like World War One and World War Two came along people began to say, well, man's maybe not getting better and better. And we started believing again what Paul said to the young pastor Timothy. In the last days, men will wax worse and worse. Not better and better. And so the idea is not that Christians are going to, through their social good works make this a good place to live. The idea that this place is rotten and getting worse, and our job is to preserve it as much as we can for as, we, as long as we can and win as many to Jesus as we can. But it was not just the church that felt that way. It was the scientific community. A couple hundred years ago, the, the age of enlightenment, which is an ironic term, the idea of the intellectual elite is that, that the problems in society, the ills that plagued us of alcoholism and women who were pregnant out of wedlock and crime and violence, all of it could be solved with enough education. That is, if you could get people in the right environment, then we could educate sin out of them, though they wouldn't call it that. And here we are, a couple hundred years later, in the most technologically advanced, the most educated time in the history of the world, and there are more people incarcerated today than ever before. Because when you increase education and when you increase technology without doing anything about the fundamental problem of a wicked heart, you just make a sinner a more sophisticated sinner. And we have some very sophisticated sinners in our culture today. And so we look around and people are asking questions like, like, What happened? I thought this was supposed to be a better time in the world. Why are we still killing each other? Well, the Bible tells us. It all goes back to the, to the Garden of Eden, right? There was a day where man did live in peace and harmony and did have a perfect environment. It was given to him by his creator with only one prohibition that he would not eat of the tree. The fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden. Of course, man violated that prohibition. He sinned against God. And the result is that sin's curse passed on our first parents, Adam and Eve, but to every subsequent generation down today. And man is not evolving upward and better as the scientists would have you believe. Man is on a downward spiral into oblivion. And the apostle Paul Describes that process in Romans chapter 1. Let's turn there. And I could read the entire chapter. And it would be edifying. But a summary of the entire chapter is found beginning in verse 28. Romans chapter 1, 28. When your friends ask you, how did we get to this point? Why is the world like it is? You point them to Romans chapter 1, verse 28. Speaking of humanity... Paul says this, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God anymore. There came a point, remember, man used to walk and talk in the garden with the Lord in the cool of the morning, had intimacy. Man rebelled, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind. There's that word again. To do those things which are not proper. Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife. Deceit, malice, any of those things seem familiar? They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but give hearty approval To those who practice them. It's not just that all of us are out there shooting up the place, but that attitude of rebellion is all around us. Did you know that after the shootings of Thursday night, some foolish person set up a memorial to the shooter. And within a few hours over 600 people had written tributes to what he had done in our country. Not only do they do these things, they give hearty approval to those who do. That, that's how we got here. It's because of sin and its effect over many generations. But dear ones, there is hope in the world. Jesus said to us, to Christians, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Now, he, This is not really a command. It is a statement of truth. He's not saying, you be the salt of the earth. You be the light of the world. He says, you are. In fact, in the Greek, what it really says is, you are the only salt. There is no plan B. We are the only hope in the world, the message that we hold. And so, your salt is either in the box, on a shelf, where it's doing no good, or it's in the world, mixing and mingling with the neighbors and the culture, bringing about a deterrence and a positive influence. Your light is either under a basket where no one can see it or it's shining up on a hill exposing truth. Those are the two options. You are the salt, you are the light. Now let's talk a little bit about this salt. We know that there are a number of uses of salt in the world. Most of us keep a little bit of salt on our table In case the eggs are a little bit bland, right? And so salt brings flavor. And this is sort of a sentimental attachment that Christians have said that that Christians ought to be the coolest people in town, right? That there's no excuse for a Christian to to be boring. Well, that's a good sentiment, it's just not what he means here. And others have said, well, um, you know, in those days, salt was a valuable commodity, and it truly was in the ancient world. You had to have it. In fact, the Roman soldiers were paid in salt. And that's where we get the expression, you're either worth your salt or you're not. And, and then salt was used as an antiseptic uh, in those days. When a baby was born, and still in some places in the world today, they rub it down with salt to keep infections from coming through the skin. So all of those things are, are true in a sense. Christians ought to be all of those things. That's not primarily what Jesus was getting out here. What he was getting out here is the world is rotten, therefore it needs preservative. My little boy who's four, Andrew and I were watching one of our favorite shows this week called Mountain Men on the History Channel. And it follows uh, some people who live in Montana. (laughs) And out in the wilderness, kind of off the grid and no electricity. And they live off the land. And uh, this one gentleman they were following went out and he, he killed a deer. And he field dressed it and he brought it home to his smokehouse and he hung it up and he took the meat and he rubbed it down with salt. And Andrew's not old enough to remember but both his grandfathers had smokehouses and and they were still standing and I can remember them when they hung meat there because they didn't have refrigeration. It was the only way they could have meat throughout the year was to salt it down because that salt kept that meat from rotting. This certainly must be what Jesus means. The world is a bad place and it's getting worse. And and the only thing keeping it from falling apart at the seams is the presence of Christians in the world. This is not a new concept. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 18. Hold your place in Matthew. And I think the clearest place we see the influence of God's people in the culture is Genesis 18. You know the story. Abraham had come to Canaan land. And he had come with his wife and his nephew Lot. And they had some sheep. And those sheep began to multiply. And the Lord blessed them and multiplied them to the point where Lot's sheep and his shepherds and servants and Abraham's sheep and his shepherds and servants were running into each other. They were in two close quarters. They were competing over the same pasture land. And it was about to lead to a fight. And Abraham in his godly wisdom says, Lot, I'm going to give you a choice. There's too many of us to stay together. We've got to, we've got to divide. And so if you want to go to the right, I'll go to the left. If you want to go to the left, I'll go to the right. And Lot chose poorly. Lot had become enamored by the bright lights in the big city. And the scripture says that he set his tent towards Sodom. I think what that means is that his heart, his affections began to be towards the things of the world. The next time we see Lot, not only is his tent set towards Sodom, he's moved to town. The next time we find him in Scripture, he's bought a house in the middle of town. And the final time we see Lot, he's become a leader, sitting at the gates of the city. He's become indistinguishable from those around him almost. And so, the Lord gets to a breaking point, and He's going to send judgment. And he comes to Abraham and he tells him what he's going to do he's going to destroy this wicked city and Abraham's first thought is towards Lot. And so this is what he says, Genesis 18:23, Abraham came near and said, "Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city, will you indeed sweep it away?" And not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous who are in it. Far be it from you to do such a thing. To slay the righteous with the wicked. So that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? So the Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city. Then I will spare the whole place on their account. And Abraham replied, now behold I have ventured to speak to the Lord Although I am but dust and ashes, suppose the 50 righteous are lacking five. Will you destroy the whole city because of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. He spoke to him yet again and said, suppose 40 are found there. And he said, I will not do it on account of the 40. Then he said, oh, may the Lord not be angry and I shall speak. Suppose 30 are found there. And he said, I will not on the count of 30. And he said now behold I have ventured to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. And he said I will not destroy it on account of the 20. Then he said oh may the Lord not be angry. And I shall speak only this once. Suppose 10 are found there. And he said I will not destroy it on account of the 10. And as soon as he had finished speaking to Abraham. The Lord departed. And Abraham returned to his place. The Lord said. If he could find. As few as 10. Righteous people in this great city. He would not destroy it. Abraham was interceding, not only on behalf of Abraham, but upon these wicked people of of Sodom and Gomorrah. And the Lord heard his prayer and said, I will not destroy it if you can find 10. Here's the sad tragedy. He could not find 10. There were not 10 righteous people and the city was destroyed. But our point is this. Our job is to be an Abraham to our culture. Our job is to intercede and intervene. Jesus said it this way, four verses earlier in Matthew 5:9, "Blessed are the peacemakers." He's speaking to Christians. And you we say, "Well, look, I'm a peaceable person. I don't break the law. I respect the police. I pay my taxes. I don't talk back. That makes you a peaceful person. that's good. We all ought to be peaceful people. He's not saying be a peaceful person, that's understood. He's saying be a peacemaker, you understand? Your job is not to just handle your business, your for and no more. Your job and my job as Christian is to be in the world, intermingled, rubbing salt against a rotting culture to influence it for good and for peace. Blessed are those who actively pursue peace through their godly influence upon their culture. Let's get real specific. How do we do that? Well, number one, by being different, by speaking differently than the world. Jesus says, out of the mouth comes what's really in the heart, right? You ever been in the barbershop or the beauty salon? And a godly person walks in and how quickly the conversation changes. Stories that people were telling that were inappropriate suddenly are stopped in mid-sentence. People that were using the Lord's name in vain stop at least for the time being. Simply because of that person's character. They have a godly influence. Well, The Bible seems to indicate that wherever we go we ought to be having that positive influence by our speech, by our attitudes, and I think primarily through our prayers of intercession. That really was what Abraham was doing. As he was talking to God, he was interceding. The word intercede means to stand between. The Bible says that what Jesus is doing in heaven right now, he's making intercession for us. That as he's standing between the righteous wrath of God and sinners, Romans 8.1, we love to quote here, there is now no condemnation for those who are what? In Christ, he stands between what we deserve and the wrath of God. So we receive mercy. We are to intercede. We're to stand between and come to God and say, Lord, I know we deserve judgment, but instead, would you send mercy? That's our function, to be sought. But we're also to, to be light. Well, the scripture says that Jesus is the light, right? John chapter one says the light came into the world, but men loved darkness rather than the light for their deeds are evil. But he is the light of the world. When Jesus left this world to go back to heaven, the instructions that he gave to his followers is that you are the light of the world. It's the relationship between the sun and the moon, if you know that. The sun is the source of light, right? So the sun's up during the day, it illuminates the atmosphere and everything around it. When the sun goes down beyond the horizon and the moon is now visible, that moon is not producing any light of its own. It's simply reflecting the light of the primary source of the sun. That's what Jesus meant, I'm convinced, when he said, To us, we're the light of the world. Left to our own devices, <laughs> we're just like the rest of the world, right? Our hearts are dark, capable of the same sins of any other man or woman. But we've been born again. We've been regenerated. We have been saved by grace. We have the Holy Spirit living within us. Now we have the answer to that question. Who can save us? The Lord can save us. Not only can he save us, from the violence that's all around us, he can save us from the ultimate penalty of sin, which is hell. And we have that good news. And Lord, forgive us if we keep it on a shelf in a box. Lord, forgive us if we hide it under a bushel basket. He's speaking here of personal evangelism. Look, I'm like you. I don't rejoice in the world that my four children are inheriting. When I think about the possibilities of their future, I I get a churning in my stomach. But I know this. The best thing that I can do for my family is to share the gospel with the lost and dying world. That's the best thing any of us can do. It's better than protesting It's better than carrying a picket sign. It's better than writing an angry email. It's better than, than writing a Facebook response. The best thing any of us can do is to be light, to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Let's commit to do that this week, amen? Salt and light in our community. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word, and Lord, I thank you for the clear teaching of Scripture that the only hope in the world is really what the church holds and that is the key is the gospel. Father, help us not to give in to the temptation to isolate ourselves away from the world. Father, we have to be in this world, but we're not to be like it. We're not to love the world or the things of it. And Lord, that's a difficult balance, but you'll give us the wisdom to do that. We trust you, Lord. Help us, Father. Father to fulfill our mission, to be a preservative in this rotting culture. Father, we know the answer to the question who can save us is Jesus. There's no other name given among men whereby they must be saved. He is the Prince of Peace. And we know there will be no true peace until men bow their knee to Him. The scripture asks the question, how can they hear without a preacher? Someone has to take this message. Lord, give us boldness at our places of work this week on our recreation fields, Lord, in our cul-de-sacs, in our chat rooms, Lord, wherever we are, help us to be light and salt. Do this, Lord, for your name's sake and for your glory, we pray, through Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.